Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 122 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Carmen Cool, an amazing psychotherapist, educator, and speaker who has devoted her life and work to dismantling diet culture, healing our relationship with food and our bodies, and supporting the next generation of body positive leaders. She's the immediate past board president of the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health, of which I joined the board this year. It's a great organization for any professionals out there looking to deepen their understanding of health at every size. And she's also a committed advocate for health at every size and just has been a huge inspiration to me and so many other people doing this work. In this episode, we talked about embracing anger against diet culture and the patriarchy, how to give yourself permission to engage in health-promoting behaviors for non-diet reasons and why that really comes at a later stage of recovery from diet culture, why intersectional feminism was so integral to her eating disorder recovery, her experience training fellow health professionals in a weight-inclusive model, and so much more. It was a really, really fabulous conversation, and I can't wait to share that with you in just a moment. Today's listener question is from a listener named Ashley who writes, I've been working to implement practices of intuitive eating and anti-dieting, etc., to my approach with food and wellness for a couple of years. But one issue that I still struggle with that I feel is a holdover from the diet mentality is late night binges. I've tried eating more throughout the day and eating a bigger dinner, especially so that I'm not feeling deprived at night. I've also tried making sure that I don't put off my quote-unquote treat, something I really enjoy eating, until the end of the day as a kind of reward, because I know that typically creates a buildup of anticipation for the item that is hard to satisfy. Yet I still find that about half the time I have a voracious hunger that cannot be quelled, i.e. I want a whole box of crackers rather than just a few. I know one factor is that I have more downtime at night than I do during the day, and that can create a sense of restlessness that maybe I turn to food for comfort. But at the time, it feels like genuine physical, not mental hunger, so the typical recommendations about occupying your brain or doing something else pleasurable don't really help because the physical need for food persists. I'm working right now on not criticizing myself afterward or the next morning when I do binge because I know the guilt compounds the issue, but I don't think that's going to get rid of the problem either. I always appreciate your practical, kind, yet effective advice, so I'm hoping that you might have a new perspective that will help me see this in a different way. Thanks very much. So thanks, Ashley, for that great question. And before I answer it, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. Yeah, so this is a great question. And the first thing I want to point out is that a lot of times when people ask questions, I've noticed this in my online course with the Q&As, I've noticed this here with the questions, people often will sort of have the answer to their question contained within the question itself. And I think that points to the fact that your intuition really is stronger than you think, right? So when you're asking a question, sometimes the answer is embedded within the question itself. And if you can sort of sit back and say, wow, is my intuition trying to speak to me through the 
this question at all, it might help guide you. And I've learned to do this myself over the years because I often would, you know, a long time ago, would like put questions out to my friends and loved ones and like always seek advice about every decision I was making. But I would find that when I was talking to them, the answer to my question would emerge in the conversation. And I kind of already knew it all along, you know? So like I've learned to trust my own intuition more and to trust that sometimes the answers are embedded within the questions. So I just wanted to highlight that to sort of give you a sense that you can really trust your intuition here and to say that specifically, I think that probably what you're experiencing is genuine physical hunger. You use those words, right? And I want to encourage you not to second guess yourself because it sounds like you do know your body and you know that it doesn't feel like it's coming from an emotional place. So really try to trust that, right? That's an aspect of intuitive eating. It's to connect with that internal wisdom and to sort of know, yeah, this really doesn't feel like emotional hunger. This feels like genuine physical hunger. And so Isabel Fox and Duke and I talked about emotional eating a few weeks ago on episode 118. And we also talked about it in our previous episode together, which was episode 74. And those episodes really highlight that emotional eating is pretty much a product of diet culture. People don't turn to food for comfort for no reason, right? They don't turn to food for comfort unless they've been deprived of food in some way. So whether that's a history of dieting or an eating disorder, and maybe you're not engaging in those behaviors exactly right now, but you have this long history of doing so, or current disordered eating or dieting, right, which is current sense of deprivation, both of those things could cause emotional eating. And also like things like food insecurity in childhood or even later in life could also cause a sense of deprivation that's pretty longstanding. But, you know, in this case, it sounds like for you, it's it's diet culture and the deprivation that it causes that bring about this sense that you might be or this fear or this worry that you might be turning to food for comfort. But I will say with that, like even if this nighttime eating that you're doing was partly driven by emotions, which it sounds like it's not because that it sounds like your intuition's telling you it's not. But even if it was, the best thing you could do to help reduce the frequency of it is not trying to occupy your brain or do something else to take your mind off it, like you said, because that will just further the deprivation. That will just make you feel more deprived. And it sounds like those things don't work for you anyway because you're hungry, right? And so that's great. It's great to know that. So trust that really the best thing you can do here is to take care of your need for food, to plan to have a bigger nighttime snack, right? So like plan on having a nighttime snack. And I will say planning for a few crackers doesn't sound very satisfying to me. If I wanted a nighttime snack, that would not be what would pop into my head as like, ooh, that sounds good. That sounds comforting, right? A few crackers sounds a little austere and sounds like it might be coming from diet mentality, right? So I think that's something to look at in your relationship with food in general to you or anyone listening is when something pops into your head like, oh, I'm hungry. I'd like a snack right now. Or I'd like a meal is the meal that your mind gravitates towards what you genuinely want or is it something that's sort of instilled in you by diet culture right like a few crackers or a few almonds or some you know these things that sound diety that sound like quote unquote good choices on a diet are actually going to be probably deprivational to you depriving to you in your efforts to be an intuitive eater and so try to look at that and try to expand what you're allowing yourself in these different contexts right so 
instead of planning for a few crackers, which no wonder you end up eating more than that because that sounds depriving. What about instead you plan to have something like a plate of crackers with cheese or with peanut butter or with some kind of like yummy spread, you know, or maybe some chips with hummus or salsa or something like that for something other than crackers, right? For a savory snack. Or if you want something sweet, like what about a nice bowl of ice cream or an ice cream sundae that you make at home or some cereal with milk or some yogurt and fruit or cookies and milk or bananas and peanut butter, you know? Like those are all actually things that I often eat for my nighttime snack. I usually like something sweet at night. Sometimes I like something savory too, and I'll eat the things I mentioned earlier. But, you know, those are some options that you could have as a nighttime snack that are like a lot less austere than just, oh, I'll just nibble on a few crackers. So think about things that are really going to satisfy you, really making it a substantial snack and knowing that it's going to happen rather than trying to eat as little as possible or trying to avoid it will, I think, really help you feel more satisfied and feel less inclined to end up at the bottom of a box of crackers, right, because you've actually eaten something that was satisfying to you at that time. Also, I know you said you've tried eating more throughout the day, but I would encourage you to really look at what diet mentality stuff is still holding on there. What are you still limiting yourself from throughout the day? And see if you can open up even more to that. Like what about snacks, for example? A lot of times people think that it's enough to eat big meals, but they're not eating between meals when they're moderately hungry. And so that can actually lead to a place where hunger is really ravenous the next time you eat. And that could affect your nighttime appetite too. Like if you've been going throughout the day, ignoring those moderate hunger signals, you could end up with some really raging hunger signals later on at night, right? So don't let too much time go by between eating occasions. And if you notice yourself getting somewhat hungry at night after dinner, don't wait until it's ravenous, right? Like think about it as, okay, this is time for my nighttime snack. I know it's a thing. I know I do this. I have nighttime snacks, right? That's a normal part of eating. That's a normal part of anyone's relationship with food. And so I'm going to plan for this. And what would I like that's going to be really satisfying and exciting? So, you know, I will say that I'm giving this advice to the listener who asked and to anyone else who is in a place where they're pretty confident in their hunger and fullness cues and where they don't have an active eating disorder that has robbed them of those cues or they aren't just sort of immediately coming out of a really restrictive dieting place that also can really rob you of your hunger and fullness cues, right? So if you're in a place where you don't even know what hungry and full feels like or this concept of moderate hunger is completely foreign, you're not going to want to start here, right? You're going to want to start with, like I mentioned last week, a meal plan with an experienced eating disorder dietitian who understands intuitive eating and health at every size, right? So you're going to want to get more sort of routine about your eating so that you can know and trust when your body is going to get food, to know it's coming, to know that you have enough. So that's the answer that I would give to anyone who's in that place, right? The more acutely disordered place. But for the listener who asked the question, I just get the sense that they're not in an acutely disordered place. They're in a place where they understand what hunger and fullness feel like, and they're really in tune with their intuition. So Ashley, to you, I would say, like, trust your intuition know that it is steering you in the right direction and give yourself what you need and open up to more and more satisfying choices. So I hope that helps. And to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. 
And if you want a whole library of answers from me about the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want, as many questions as you want, then come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has 13 modules of content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, and really walking you through in-depth journal exercises to master those principles and start experiencing a really deep and lasting freedom with food. Plus, we have an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast with answers to hundreds of participants' questions already. And when you join the course, you can listen to all of those, which are exclusive to course participants. No one else gets them. And you can ask me your questions and have me answer them in the following month's course Q&A. And participants really love the Q&As. They've told me that they really help to make things clear and that they love having that personal touch as part of the course. As one participant said, it really makes the course feel more like one-on-one coaching. Another thing that course members really love is our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants. It's full of such amazing, wonderful people who are really just so supportive and there for each other on this intuitive eating journey. And as you know, it's it sometimes can be hard to go through this process and you need support along the way. So I just love this community aspect. Plus, I'm in there answering questions and providing guidance along with my wonderful staff. So you really get a huge amount of community support and individual attention in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Carmen Cool. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Well, it's such a big question because my relationship with food has gone through it's just gone through so much right over over time but when i when i think back i think what feels true is that i i don't remember a time that i wasn't aware of diet culture you know kind of like i was indoctrinated into that from the beginning like i remember being 11 years old in elementary school and you know kind of dieting along with my mom because it was that time when Richard Simmons was on and Jane Fonda was talking about feel the burn and there was Dexatrim and Slim Fast. And that was, that was the culture that I was growing up in. And I remember that she'd pack my lunch with like a diet sandwich on this really dry, gross bread with filled with mushrooms and a can of tab. And so, you know, I think from the beginning, I hate mushrooms, by the way. So it was really a horrible lunch for a million reasons for me. (laughs) But I remember like, just this way of that being normal. At the same time, starting to feel into this dilemma where I also was using food as a way to cope with a lot of things. Food became a source of comfort. It became a companion. It became this thing I started to sneak. Right? I remember our freezer out in the garage had had boxes of Esther Price chocolates, and I had my favorite kind. And I remember every day going out there and sneaking one. And I remember my, my young thought process at the time was if I just take one, no one will ever notice they're gone. Except that I did that every day, right? And so I didn't <laughs> think that all the way through. But it did start up this pattern of sneaking food. And I remember things like being in high school and selling candy bars as a fundraiser and eating much more than I sold, right? Just kind of Binging. I mean, I, it was it was the start of a binge eating disorder, which I had for for quite a while. And I remember going back and forth between dieting and overeating throughout the years, and knowing that 
that my weight also was impacted by that behavior. And that became also a source of concern for my parents, which then kind of led back into the dieting. I mean, all of this is a pattern that's familiar, I'm sure, to the people listening to the podcast right now. Oh, yes. Right? Going back and forth between restricting and and binging. And isn't it interesting, too, that the behaviors of sneaking food and using food as a source of comfort were really heightened probably by that restrictive Mm -hmm. behavior, right? Because we know from the research, like people don't really tend to engage in those behaviors or use food as a source of comfort to that degree if they're not restricting or if they're not restrained eaters already. Right, right. And none of that was, you know, apparent to me at the time or certainly in my awareness. I just thought, oh, my weight is a problem that I need to do something about. Everyone's telling me it's a problem I need to do something about and diet is the solution. And then I think it was when I was in my undergrad and college is when it kind of all reached a point. The binge eating had gotten really strong at that point. I, I was becoming really miserable, not knowing what to do. I remember the first time trying to go to therapy. Like, you know, there's something going on here with me. And I was too scared. Like, I can remember literally taking the elevator up to the counseling center. I was at Ohio State at the time watching the doors open. And then I just stood there until they closed and I left the building. It just wasn't something I was able to do at the time. And I thought, well, I just, what I really need to do is get super serious now about dieting. (laughs) And, And so that was like the fork in the road. And I veered off into dieting and did that hardcore for a while and lost a lot of weight really quickly. And of course, then what happens, right, also pretty familiar for me, for for people is that everybody noticed. And everyone started giving me compliments, which then just fueled that even more. Yeah, those compliments are so toxic. Oh, so toxic and so tricky. And, you know, I started exercising for the first time, you know, as a way to change my body, not as a source of joy. I, you know, got really restrictive. You know, I'm, I'm leaving out details because I don't think they're important. But then what happened is the slide into bulimia from that point became really easy for me to do, right? I'm like, well, if I can't get down to where I think I should be from dieting alone, then I will, I'll just slide right into here. And again, I'm not going to share much about that. I think what does feel important about that to name is that is that it wasn't that my body was changing as much as the fact that my life was getting smaller, right? That that it got more and more narrow. And I can just, food and weight were all consuming, right? It was all I could think about. They occupied all of my thoughts. They occupied every breath. They occupied all my time. I started skipping classes so I could work out. And then my therapist, I did at, at some point along the way here, go into therapy. And the things that I started doing were really dangerous. And she found an intensive treatment program for eating disorders. And I dropped out of school for a semester and went into treatment. That's really lucky. Yeah, I was really lucky to have somebody that said, yo, you know, this is not, not at all good what's happening here. And again, it was, you know, potentially incredibly dangerous what I was starting to do. So I do feel incredibly grateful for her and for for the care that I got at the treatment center. It was a back in the 80s. This is a this is a really long time ago. But I had a feminist model and I had kind of a feminist awakening at the time and I had a therapist who was in a very large body. You know, and I remember thinking, I remember that moment of dissonance of like, okay, so I've always believed that I need to be thin 
or rather not fat, you know, to be successful and beautiful and powerful. But here's this person in front of me who was not thin and was very successful and beautiful and powerful. And right, so that kind of collided in my mind and and this moment of like, well, then what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? Right. And so all this grief and regret and anger over all of the time and energy that that I was spending on something that wasn't important at all. I feel like right now I've shortened the story drastically, but it's kind of a broad overview, I think, of what was happening at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great overview and sort of window into how eating disorders can progress, right? Because it really strikes me how the intervention didn't happen until it was behaviors that were super dangerous where it was sort of like okay you can't you can't do this this is not safe mm-hmm. but all the stuff that led up to that right which is mm-hmm. stuff that most of us and certainly probably close to 100% of people listening to this podcast i would be willing to ima- imagine you know is stuff that we've engaged in right and that maybe some of us are still struggling with that some people listening are are still in that sort of diet binge or diet emotional eating cycle mm-hmm. and that's just so normalized in our society that's not seen as problematic that's not seen as a risk factor for eating disorders even though it is right and professionals know right. that but the general public doesn't know that and doesn't think like hey that's dangerous what you're doing you know dieting is dangerous right so yeah, it's really, really interesting how that happens, where it, it doesn't become a thing. And thank God you got intervention and treatment when you did, right? And that it sounds like this treatment program really helped turn it around for you without having a huge, you know, delay in your life. So that that is fortunate. Yeah, I think at the time that I that I got there, I was ready. Like, I was just ready. Like, I, I will abandon this this weight loss pursuit, right, if it just means I can get my life back. And continuing on this this path of trying to change my body is not what I wanted my life to be about, you know. And and I knew that. When did you start studying to be a therapist? Did you were you studying psychology in college at the time, or that's a, an also a long and windy story. <laughs> um, when I started college, I was double majoring in music and psychology because they both held my interest. They both were things that I that I loved. And I was, I was double majoring. And then at some point it became clear to me that that didn't make sense and I needed to choose one or I felt like I needed to choose one. So I dropped psychology at that point and, and majored in music. And then I think maybe when I was 29, 30, 31, maybe started to reorient back towards therapy. Like it just kept coming back up. I'll also say that Alongside of this whole process, my sister also was very active in an eating disorder for years and decades, actually. And she died from hers in her late 30s. So there was a way that that was also happening. And there's probably so much we could talk about in terms of how I navigated my own recovery in the process, you know, alongside her eating disorder and and where that led. But, But I think that what I in some ways, you know, the eating disorder killed her. But in other ways, I can take a step back and say it's weight stigma that actually killed her. And so I became super interested in the intersection of weight stigma and eating disorders. And by the time that I went back to school to get my master's in counseling, I knew that this was the field I wanted to be in. That was just clear to me. Mm, Yeah. So the specialty sort of came to you through your own experience and your own witnessing of, of your sister's disorder. 
and my feminist awakening. I think all of those things together kind of said to me, you know, or called me into this is the thing I wanted to do with my life. Right. I mean, yeah, there is so much there. That's that's a really rich transformation, it sounds like. I want to hear more about how your sister's eating disorder influenced your recovery or how those interacted, how your eating disorders might have interacted. And then also, in a minute, maybe we can talk about the feminist awakening, because I love, I love that term and I love the, the idea that feminism was such a powerful force for you. So when I think about what it was like to be in my own eating disorder and recovery at the same time my sister was in hers, what really comes up is the way that anorexia is the most, I'm just going to say, the most privileged in many ways, the eating disorders. And so feeling recognized and seen in my struggle next to hers was a real challenge. I think it was really easy for people to think that Carmen is just fine because next to what my sister was going through and looking like at the time, right? That there was just no comparison. And I wasn't trying to compete, but but there was a way that I felt unseen, actually. Yeah, the competition, I think, is forced upon us. I think this is another way that the thin ideal and fat phobia really manifest in eating disorder treatment or just even, you know, sort of how lay people view eating disorders, right? Because it is... It is so privileged. It is, you know, and of course, anyone listening with anorexia and tr- struggling to recover knows that it's also not a walk in the park, right? It's, of course, oh, like of course. A, an incredibly difficult process to go through, just like any eating disorder. But there is this sense from the outside world, like you're the one with that really needs help, right? You get a lot mm-hmm. of attention. Or also the sort of compliments and jealousy and what are you doing? What's your secret, right? That can come from people who just don't get it in the outside world too, right? Yeah. And also something about where the resources went. So I think when her process became really life-threatening, you know, that's where all the resources got funneled, which is understandable. So I, I think that I, my recovery felt much more, I feel like I was on my own. And in some ways, I don't know that that feels entirely fair, but, but in many ways, right, I didn't want to divert resources and energy from, from my sister. And I I think what I want to say is I became really self-reliant and independent and going after the help and the treatment that I needed. And binge eating, you know, that even though bulimia was showing up, binge eating also wasn't really recognized as an eating disorder back then at all. And so that was another that was another way that I think what was happening for me got overlooked. Yeah, right. It wasn't even in the diagnostic and statistical manual. It wasn't something that a therapist could say, oh, you have this and sort of validate your your feelings and what you were going through. Right. And yeah, it's interesting because, again, it's like it had to get to this extreme place of bulimia, which we had a name for back then, which is, you know, sort of taking binging and adding on a dangerous behavior to compensate, you know, it, it took that to, to get you help, to get you recognized. Mm-hmm. It took that. It, it also took me being willing to say, this is, this is not okay. Like what is happening for me is not okay. Like I, at the time was a music major in college. Right. And so like that, I was watching that kind of slip away. Like I was watching the dreams that I had for my life slip away. 
And that was not okay. That was pissing me off, frankly. Like reaching a certain size, that's not my dream. You know, my dream were these other things that changed along the way. But I think the point was this this way that I'm like, this is everything that I hold important, everything that I want for my life is not able to happen because all of my energy is getting funneled into this project of trying to make my body be something other than what it is. Yes. So your life was getting really curtailed, which I think is, mm-hmm. I mean, I was talking to a client the other day who asked me, you know, who knows about my recovery journey as well, or knows that I'm recovered anyway. And I've shared a few things along the way working with her, you know, just to sort of give examples or whatever that that were relevant to the conversation. But she asked me, like, what did it actually take for you to pursue recovery when it was really difficult? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know if there's anything I can really put my finger on except that life was just more important. My values were I was privileging or prioritizing what I wanted from my life finally instead of letting my life get totally clouded and taken away by the eating disorder. And that takes a certain, yeah, it takes getting to a certain place, right? Where you're just like, enough is enough. Like this, I can't do this anymore. Yes. Were you already at that place when you went to treatment? Do you feel like, were you sort of just like at this enough kind of breaking point? I was close. I think I was tired. I was exhausted. I was miserable. So those things were true. And then I think it was being in relationship with Susan Woolley, actually, who was the therapist that I had at the time. It was my relationship with her that, and listening to her talk about her story, that really kind of woke me up more, more fully. And I feel like she just stepped into my life and was a catalyst for so many things, right? She was a, a relational image for me of a woman in a larger body who who had all of the stuff that I wanted. And she was unapologetic in herself. She was feminist. She was, she introduced me in a way to, not in a way, she introduced me to a way of thinking that would turn into health at every size. So I, I kind of, my whole path, I really can trace back to her. She introduced me to Deb Burgard before I ever met Deb Burgard. Like, I, I feel like I owe so much to that, to that woman, actually. Wow, that's amazing. And it's really, I think it's really interesting and powerful to say you're sort of tired and you're, you know, this way isn't working and then have a paradigm introduced to you that can give you all the things you want mm-hmm. without this idea of weight loss as, you know, the way to achieve them. It's like you, you saw this whole other path open up. Mm-hmm. She introduced me to the fat acceptance movement. I mean, that was, that was where I entered in and and then I, when I left treatment, I went back to school, and then I enrolled in a women's studies class. <laughs> and, then, and then it just all, it all coalesced, and then I got busy <laughs> in some ways, like putting together, right, the personal and the political. I think that's what Susan started that process, and then getting involved into feminism and women's studies just kind of galvanized that whole, that whole process for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important to sort of highlight that as a way that feminism is is at the root of so much of what we do in this body acceptance movement now, right? Like that people who are coming in through mainstream body positivity or through, you know, seeing people on Instagram sharing about loving their body, like the roots of that or the history of that really goes back to feminism and intersectional feminism also right and like 
that feminism, you can't have true body acceptance or fat acceptance or eating disorder recovery without the roots of feminism, I think. You know, that that needs to be a part of everyone's healing from diet culture, in my mind, because it's because you know, what creates diet culture is patriarchy, right? That the what contributes to women and femmes and really people of all genders, but like especially women and femmes being oppressed by a certain body image ideal is patriarchy. So I'm curious to hear what feminism did for you in your recovery from diet culture and what what you took from it that you still use today. In some ways this feels like so long ago. I think what I remember is I started thinking about the way my dreams had been slipping away from me. And then I started thinking about how that's true for so many people. And I started thinking about all of the things that we could be doing in the world if we had our energy back, if we had our time back from from spending it in some project of trying to be a body we think we're supposed to be, that if we reoriented all of that energy back into the world, so much more would be possible. And when I really started thinking about that, I just started getting really pissed off at all of the forces that told me I wasn't okay just as I was. Right. And so I I felt like I wanted to start fighting back in some way. And I wanted to start reclaiming my right to be in my body just as it was. Not that that was an instant switch, but my desire to reclaim that was strong. And for all of us, right, to be able to have the freedom to be in the bodies we're in and not have to conform to any mythic norm, you know, as Audre Lorde calls it, right, that that we, we just get to get busy in, in being ourselves and saying, fuck you to any to anything that says that I have to fit into some narrow parameter of what's acceptable to you or society or patriarchy or or whatever that is. Right. Yeah, that outrage, I think, is so important. It's a hugely healing aspect of this work because when you're stuck in diet culture, I feel like there's a tendency to turn anger towards yourself. You know, you're buying the messages that you're getting from diet culture saying like, well, it's your fault that you can't stick to this diet. It's your fault that you don't adhere to the thin ideal. And so try harder, do better. That's what we're hearing from diet culture. And when we've internalized that, it's easy to think like, oh, yeah, I'm bad. I'm terrible. I have this problem. It's all me. And so there's something super powerful and transformative about reclaiming that anger, you know, turning it outward where it belongs, turning it on diet culture instead of inward in this sort of way that diet culture wants you to do, right? That keeps you stuck, you know, that keeps you, I love what you're, everything you're saying about, you know, the life that you lost. Cause I'm, I really have this metaphor that I've been using a lot lately of the life thief, you know, that diet culture is a life thief, that it steals your essence. It steals your time. It steals your energy. It steals your capacity for change. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you when you get mad at that, right, when you push back against it and like call it what it is, it's extremely liberating. Mm-hmm. Very liberating. Yeah. It also gave me a place for my rebelliousness to kind of find some room and some space in, in the healthiest way, right? The way of saying, I'm, I'm not going to conform to status quo. I'm not going to do things just because you tell me I have to. I'm not going to look a certain way just because you tell me I have to. And that, that part that just got really interested in saying no 
and rebelling against the status quo also really came alive during that period of time. And, and then I think it's about, it's been about for me learning how to work skillfully with that energy in myself, because I think I can easily get caught up in rebelling for the sake of rebellion. And I have to watch out for that, right? I don't like being told what to do. Then the eight-year-old that's like, you're not the boss of me is very strong and can, <laughs> can really get in my way if I'm not careful. And, and I know Deb Burkhardt has talked about this too, but it was easy for me to get caught in the system of I'm either complying or I'm rebelling. And so finding that middle path where I was really just being true to myself became my task for a while. Like really understanding what is it that's going on behind the scenes for me? How can I teach myself to rebuild new frames of reference that are really based on my wisdom and not not necessarily for or against anything, but really coming out of what what's necessary for me now? What's important for me now? What's the what am I going to reference and and learning how to make that be my own my own internal wisdom rather than anything outside of me. Yeah, that's so important and I think I'd love to hear about how that manifested in your relationship with food because one thing that I hear from a lot of people that I work with as an intuitive eating coach is they often will go through that place of rebellion, which I think is a really natural part on the path to intuitive eating to getting back to really putting your own intuition and inner wisdom in charge because you kind of need that space to break free from diet culture, right? And just be like, fuck it. I'm going to eat all the candy, all the chips, all the, you know, everything that I want that I've been deprived of for so long. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important part of the process. And for me, what, what I remember the most about that is that I needed to legalize vegetables again, right? And I needed to legalize movement. So there was, when I was in that period, I'm like, I'm not going to eat a vegetable because that to me feels like it's a diet food and I'm not doing that anymore. So therefore I am not eating anything that remotely reminded me of dieting. And I'm not going to exercise because the only time that I ever engaged in that was when I was trying to change my body. And so there was a way that I had to learn how to bring that back in to my life in a way that was like, I'm going to eat for nourishment and pleasure. I'm going to I'm going to bring back in these foods without the association of dieting because I like them and I'm going to move my body as a way to liberate my life force not to change it, but it took me time to be able to engage in those things in a way that didn't take me back to that old way of thinking. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, that I think that's very well said that like they have such a strong association at first with with diet culture and dieting that it's easy to sort of feel like, well, if I'm eating vegetables, that must mean I'm restricting or I'm depriving myself. Or if I'm moving, that must be for body change. And yeah, I think it does take a while to really break that association and help yourself feel like there are other benefits to this. There are other reasons to be doing this. How did that process look for you? Like, did you sort of implement any practices around that to to kind of help yourself feel like you weren't rebelling anymore and you were, you know, you weren't falling back into the diet mentality or did it kind of just slowly change over time? I think it just took some time. Right? I had to let myself let myself be where I was for as long as I needed to be there and then realize that if I'm avoiding something for any reason, I might want to take a look at that. So if I'm in, if I'm avoiding movement and I'm avoiding salad, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be avoiding anything. I want, I want everything available to me. And then I want my choices to be able to be grounded in my body's wisdom. And that way they're mine. 
as opposed to either complying or rebelling against something else. And so I, I did, I do think that just took, that took time for me. Did you go through any pro- any formal process of intuitive eating or was it sort of trial and error with, with your therapist and on your own? It's interesting for me to think about. If I remember, so while this process was happening, I was being introduced to the work of Deb Burgard and Pat Lyons, right? And so starting to understand fat acceptance, fat liberation, started getting involved in the politics of that, started getting involved in the early origins of health at every size. And so these kind of things were kind of happening at the same time. I don't remember a formal process of intuitive eating, but I sure remember learning about it and reading about it. And then also getting trained in mindfulness in grad school. Like we had to meditate as part of our graduate program. Wow. I was starting mindfulness practices, which also was helping a lot at that period of time, just noticing what's happening for me. What am I aware of? What am I what am I feeling? I also in the you know in the middle of all of this, I forgot to say, got trained as a massage therapist, got trained as a body worker. So, as well as mindfulness practices, I was also learning how to trust in the body's wisdom from that avenue. So it's so interesting to think about now how all of these things really started to come together for me. But learning about the wisdom that my body holds was a really important path, and I don't think that needed to be through a formal intuitive eating process. It was already happening in in other ways. Right. Yeah. I think there's so many avenues into it, mm-hmm. into understanding your body's wisdom. And I think mindfulness is such an important one that I sometimes hear people say, well, I can't meditate. I'm such a terrible meditator, right? Like the sort of self-criticism about about meditation. But I think mindfulness is more than that, right? It's more than just a sitting meditation practice. It can look mm-hmm. a lot of different ways for different people. So I'm curious how you brought that into your life and how it affected your relationship with food and your body? So I got my graduate degree at Naropa University. It was called Naropa Institute at the time, but they changed its name to Naropa here in Boulder. And mindfulness was just integral to the entire program. I think right before that, I had come out of a massage training program where I also had been introduced to Hakomi, which I later got certified in. So it's it's very much a somatic-based, mindfulness-based kind of way of working. And everything in me started to resonate with this idea that my body is trustworthy and that's where that and that's where that idea started to take root for me and then when i when i came to boulder started pursuing hakomi but also enrolled in a program where mindfulness was just part of it from the very beginning right this ability to be with ourselves before we're going to be able to be with somebody else learning how to just be present with my own breath, be present with my own feelings, my own process, try to cultivate a a non-judgmental observer. I still work on that every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same. Not gonna lie. But learning how to, you know, how to how to do that very much helped me be able to say or learn how to tune into what is it that is most needed right now. And in every way, whether that's a conversation I need to have or a food that my body's asking me for. But what is it that would actually be a loving and important choice for me right now in terms of 
what my well-being needs. I hope I'm making sense. Oh, yeah. No, it makes complete sense. It's it's very aligned with what I often say about intuitive eating as being self-care, not self-control, you know, like that you're you're not imposing something external on yourself or your body. You're looking inward to say, like, what do I need right now? What is the best form of self-care I can offer myself? And that really comes from that place of learning how to non-judgmentally observe your needs, your desires, your reactions to things, which is is called mindfulness, but is also sometimes called, you know, like the, I think in the book Intuitive Eating, Triboli and Rash call it the food anthropologist. You know, it kind of is a similar sort of orientation of just like observing, you know, not feeling like you need to change, not feeling like you have to do anything or you're bad for having these reactions or thoughts, which of course is is the human condition to want to judge and want to label things, right? So I think it's an ongoing practice to be cultivating that non-judgmental observer within yourself. And I think even the most seasoned meditation teachers have to practice. And that's why it's called a practice, right? Because right. we're, we're never going to be there. It's just a journey. But but yeah, I think that that skill has such powerful resonance for people who've had who've been cut off from their bodies and cut off from their relationship with food, right? Because getting back into the body, getting back into the the sort of inner wisdom and trusting that is a whole different paradigm than diet culture, which says, you're wrong. You wouldn't know how to eat without me, the diet, telling you what to do. So do this, do that. You know, Don't deviate from it. And if you do, you're bad and it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Also, there was something important about really cultivating an attitude of curiosity to everything, right? So I think finding people who could reflect back to me in a curious and compassionate way helped me learn how to be able to do that for myself. So what is it? What happens if I do this thing? What happens if I eat this thing? What happens if I don't? What happens if I try this? Right. But just having this attitude of, I'm just really curious to see what's going to happen. Then that also gave me a lot of freedom to play around with and learn some things that I don't know that I would have figured out any other way. Right. It helps you kind of hold things more lightly than if you were thinking everything was so serious and so important, which I think that eating disorders and diet culture train people to do. It's like every single food decision is life and death or every single food decision has an impact on your body and therefore your worth rather than sort of letting go of that a little bit and just being like, you know what? Every single food decision is not the be all end all. And it can be an experiment and can be a process of learning what I like and what I don't like and what feels good and what what I don't want to do again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what feels good today, which might be completely different than what felt good yesterday. Right. That's such a, yeah, I think that's a very important point of recognizing that we're always in flux. We're always changing. And so it's not going to be you make one choice one time, you figured it out. Okay, this is what feels good. And then it's just that way forever. No, there's no rules. There's no, you don't kind of solidify it. It's always it's always moving. So like what you want to eat one day is going to be different than what you want to eat the next day. You might be hungrier one day than the next. You might be more inclined to rest one day than the next or more inclined to move one day than the next, right? There's always, um, our bodies are are really wise in that way. They're always in flux and they're always telling us what they need. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Although of course, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on, you know, working with people who have significant eating disorders or significantly disordered eating through that spectrum of climbing out of it or coming out of the the sort of 
depths of the eating disorder toward a more neutral relationship with food or a more positive relationship with food, what that looks like at different stages. Because I think one thing that I've heard from a lot of people, and I'm always trying to trying to remember to highlight in any discussion I have about intuitive eating is that people with significant eating disorders and significantly disordered behaviors with food are really, really far from tuning into their body's cues, maybe having their body's cues even be consistent. And so, you know, jumping from that to intuitive eating might be not the right thing at the moment, right? You might need some gradual steps in between. You might need support like from a treatment team or a treatment program to get to that place. And so you're not quite ready to just make that leap yet. Yeah. I think we are not often taught how to be fluent in the language of our bodies. And so even if somebody does need structure for a while, we can still do the work of learning how to reconnect with our body, right? That those don't have to be one or the other. They don't cancel each other out. So sometimes structure is really important and a meal plan might be really important. And, you know, on the way to an intuitive kind of living place and helping somebody learn how to recognize the language of their body, you know, so most of us, you know, we learn how to be really cut off from it. So doing some practices and and doing the work to learn how to feel things in our body is an important part of it, I think, for me. Yeah, totally. Like the the reconnection process can be happening all along the way, even if you're really, really out of touch with it at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. What are some practices you like for, for helping people get back in touch with their bodies? Oh, it depends on the day and depends on what occurs to me. You know, <laughs> I think I kind of think about how connected are we to ourselves and what what's getting in the way of us in that connection and then kind of coming up with experiments to play around with that with somebody. Sometimes it's, it could be anything from breath to getting up and moving around my office and just having somebody notice what that felt like or having somebody sitting and crossing their arms in front of them slowly kind of in a place of mindfulness and noticing what that feels like and then uncrossing them and opening them and noticing what does that feel like. So kind of taking on different stances and postures and noticing how do my how does my body feel differently in each of these different ways? And then building a language to describe that. I do a lot of experiments in that way. I love that. Slow down, you know, so that somebody can really notice what is it that's happening inside of me? It's kind of like self-study, right? What is it that's happening inside of me as I, as I repeat this phrase or as I assume this posture with my body or as somebody's moving towards me or as I notice how I am in relationship, right, to all these different parts of my life, it, it just helps give us access to all of that information. If we can slow down, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... No, I love that. I think that makes so much sense. And the idea of slowing down habitual motions or habitual states, you know, habitual thoughts, like, I think is is such the crux of recovery from this stuff for a lot of people because we get so ingrained with these diet culture or eating disorder behaviors that it's it's an automatic response like this bad feeling I have to do this you know or I have this thought so I have to act on it and so creating a little bit of space between the thought and the action is really one of the keys to long-term change and so 
practices that sort of cultivate that, even if they're not related directly to the thing at hand, even if they're not related directly to the thoughts about food in your body initially, you can sort of learn to experience that in other contexts where maybe the stakes are lower, right? It, it helps translate over into things that you can really do when the stakes are higher too. Yeah. I'm curious to know as a health at every size professional and having having been really rooted in that paradigm since before it really even had a name, what that trajectory has been like for you as you've seen the medical model and the fat phobic model of care really get hold of our eating disorder treatment industry as well as the medical establishment at large and just sort of, you know, what that's been like for you and also where you found community and support around those issues? That is a very big question, <laughs> you know, because I'm having lots of feelings these days about how psychotherapy itself has been kind of subsumed under the medical model and how I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. So, well, if I'm going to be really honest, it really fucking pisses me off. That's how I feel about that. That's how I feel about that. It makes... Uh, mm-hmm. I, have, I, have, I have feelings. Yes, I'm. I'm disappointed and I'm infuriated at the way that some eating disorder treatment facilities. I might even say most are still profiting. They're still profiting off of fat phobia, right? And they're still prescribing. I just don't even understand. I don't even understand the way those two things can go together into into one thing right? Eating disorder recovery and helping people with weight loss. Like I, I actually just am at a loss to understand how that even makes sense. I don't get it. Like I really just don't get it. And the unexamined weight bias and weight stigma and helping people conform to the status quo. Like I'm not about that. I'm not interested in that. I, I really, really, really want so much more work to be done around getting, about understanding the way weight stigma is showing up in the eating disorder field. Same here. I mean, honestly, one of the reasons I started talking about health at every size on this podcast was because I started, you know, just sort of focusing on eating disorders and disordered eating. That's like the that was the focus when I first started it in 2013. And then I was going to conferences and reading scientific articles about eating disorder treatment and reading about health at every size, hearing people speak about health at every size. And, you know, it was fairly new in my career as a clinician. And so I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This makes total sense. I see it. Like, this is the best scientific best practices. This is great. And then I was going out into the world and working with people, coordinating care with people at treatment centers and realizing that they were not operating from that paradigm. They were operating from a paradigm of, oh, but this person should really be losing weight because they have binge eating disorder. So we need to put them on a restricted calorie diet. Stuff like that, where I'm like, wait a minute, what? You want me to food shame this person who's recovering from an eating disorder that was driven by, you know, the th internalization of the thin ideal and restriction. And, and that is what really underlied the binge eating behaviors in the first place. Like, how is it actually ethical care or going to help this person recover completely to apply the same logic that got them there? And it just was so clear to me, I think maybe because of this perspective as a, a sort of newer person to the field and also having had my own history of eating disorder recovery and being a journalist as my first career and kind of being like, you know, I need to be really attentive to the evidence and what that actually says. It just was like, 
okay, that's weird and messed up. And I think we need to have more public conversations about health at every size and weight bias in the eating disorder field, but also just in the world in general, because not enough people actually know about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So that has been a huge passion of mine as well. And something that I really hope to push back on with this podcast, because I, I still see so many treatment centers and it feels like it's getting worse sometimes the way that they're integrating weight management, quote unquote, into their (laughs) offerings, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. I think the eating disorder treatment world is still staying within the bounds of helping people be the right size, you know, and I have scare quotes around right, you know, like, no, no, just no. Right. You can't break out of the paradigm with the same tools that got you into the mess that you're in right now. You know, you can't, you can't break out of the eating disorder with the same mindset that got you into the eating disorder. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So much we could say about all that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, and I I mean, the medicalization of not just eating disorder treatment, but quote unquote obesity, I think is a big part of the problem too, right? Because eating disorder treatment facilities are not in a vacuum. They're responding to this kind of cultural pressure, right? Yeah. 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 And just the, you know, the, the automatic attachment people have to a diagnosis that's tied to the physical body of somebody, you know, like that's, that's not our expertise. That's our prejudice. And I get really busy when I, yeah, I'm, I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah. It's just, just stop. You know, That's what I want to say. Like, can we just stop? Right. Can we have weight inclusive care? Yeah. It's like, you know, and I'm like, why is it so complicated? It doesn't need to be so complicated. It really doesn't. I mean, I think there's this other piece that we kind of started to talk about before about health at every size has evolved, right? It's going, it's, you know, it's not the same. The roots of the movement started out in one place and then it's it's continued to evolve as everything does going forward. And so, you know, now the health at every size movement has has started to focus even more on inclusivity of not just people in larger bodies, but people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and racial identities and ethnicities and gender identities and all of it, right? It's become more about social justice. And I think that's a piece that's really missing from the mainstream conversation about quote unquote obesity, right? And the medicalization of of being in a larger body. It really misses out on on the influence of social determinants of health, right? The other things that have nothing to do with people's body size that contribute to their health outcomes, both mental and physical. Yeah. Yeah. I think I read something recently that living in poverty has a much more greater impact on someone's health than if they're eating intuitively and moving joyfully. Right. Yeah. So like intuitive eating and joyful movement are practices that can support health, but they're also such a small, like behaviors that you undertake voluntarily are such a small percentage of your actual health outcomes, right? We don't have as much influence over our health as we're always told we do. That's right. That's right. And intuitive eating and movement isn't always accessible to people for all kinds of reasons. And so, you know, if we if we say we're talking about health, but we're not talking about access, then we're not talking about health. Yeah. Explain that more and, you know, what, what you mean by access and why these practices are so inaccessible to so many people. So I'm, I'm in a place of learning around this, too. So I, I don't want to come across like I know 
I know everything about this, but what I've been in the process of learning more and more by listening, right, and unlearning, frankly, is that somebody may say, okay, my body really wants this thing, this food, but that food is either not available because they live in a they live in a food desert or because it's they can't afford it, right? There's class issues that kind of come into play here. Those kinds of things, right? That not everything that somebody might feel like they want or need, they have access to for all kinds of different reasons. Yeah. So intuitive eating at the sort of broadest level is not accessible to everyone because, yeah, you can't just say like, ooh, what I feel like right now is a big juicy peach and then go out and get it. Like if if that's not available to you in, in your neighborhood or financially, that's not going to happen. So people are sort of doing the best they can with what they have. And we have to be compassionate with that and and understanding of that as, you know, there is no rule that intuitive eating or health at every size has to look a certain way or be done a certain way, right? There's no perfection. There's no doing it right or wrong. Right, right. And if we are thinking that, then we've missed the point entirely. Like it's not another system to adopt, right? Deb talks about it a lot as like it's a stigma resistance practice. And it's not even about people doing the best they can with what they have. It's like there's there's bigger, there's social forces operating on us that that we really need to go after so that everyone has the freedom and access to do the things that they want to do or not do the things that they that they don't want to do, right? There's no mandate that we have to that we have to do any one certain thing here. Right. And that that mandate to perform health in a certain way is really healthism. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, that the the health at every size movement has evolved past the the maybe the roots of it which were sort of interpreted sometimes even if that wasn't the intent, interpreted as healthist to this place of like health is not a value that everybody has to hold. Right? Everyone gets to choose how much they want to prioritize that or not on on any given day. And then also sometimes people might want to choose it more and just not have access to be able to because of financial constraints, time constraints, life constraints, et cetera. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. All kinds of things can get in the way. Yeah. And and with joyful movement, too, I think it's worth pointing out that that can be perceived as an ableist thing, right? Because if you don't have the ability to move in ways that might feel joyful to you, you know, that can also feel like you're not, quote, doing it right or something. You're not doing health at every size right. Yeah, right, whatever that means. And I think not everybody wants to exercise, period, mm-hmm. or move, right? That that there's no moral obligation to do that either. And I think people get to decide for themselves what makes sense for them. Yeah, health is not a moral obligation. It's not. It's not. And, you know, I, I went through this period of time where I was very exercise resistant, you know, for, for the reasons that we talked about earlier, like I didn't want to, cause it had all these really horrible associations for me. And I, I was abusing my body with it before. And, and now to get to a place where, you know, as a therapist, I sit all day, it's kind of like I sit for a living and learning that it actually feels good. If sometimes I get up and I go move at the end of the day, that, that, that helps me. But that has to be a neutral thing in order for me to to decide or choose what I want to do. This is, I think, going back maybe to the earlier discussion we were having. But but no, this place of 
like you're doing it right if you're moving. Like I don't I don't really care. I'm not invested on whether or not somebody exercises. I'm invested in them having freedom to do freedom and access to do the, the things that they feel like they want for their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think that segues into a discussion around cuz I I think about this a lot in terms of being a health professional steeped in the medical model and the fat phobic weight centric model because I'm a dietitian and that's what our training is like, you know, and so for many 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 professionals that's kind of where we're coming from, right? That's the jumping off point that a lot of us have when we go into doing this work. And you do work with professionals around becoming more steeped in this weight inclusive model and helping break out of the the weight centric conventional weight paradigm that they've probably been trained in. So I'm curious to hear more about that, like how you help people and and what you do to facilitate people's journeys in health at every size. Really depends in a way on who I'm speaking with and what they're wanting. So I do a lot of work mostly locally here in the Boulder Denver area. I speak a lot to people in the reproductive justice, reproductive health kind of sphere. I do a lot of work with people who work with youth, helping them work with young people in a weight-inclusive way, and a lot of work with other therapists, whether that's one-on-one or or in groups or lectures. do a lot of work in local colleges here, too. And I think the the how is really, you know, like how to bring people along doesn't happen in one presentation. Right. And so sometimes it's sometimes it's just introducing new ideas to people and and seeing what wants to I feel like I do a lot of seed planting, right? And and that's my job. And I'm not in charge or in control over when they sprout or if they do. Right. So I think about it. I have I used to be very invested when I when I gave a presentation that I want people to understand it and believe me. And that was a lot for me to to go into to expect and I've backed way off of that now and it's like now I just want to introduce you to a different way of thinking perhaps than you've been used to and and that's all I want right and if you want to know more I can give you resources for more I'm I have to be less invested in the outcome not that I don't desperately want that outcome of weight inclusive providers across the world but when I'm speaking to somebody it's like I just here's an opening here's kind of like listening to where they may have felt stuck in the traditional paradigm, what their frustrations are, kind of finding out where somebody's starting from so that I can, I don't want to say meet them where they are because I don't know that that's always what I want to do actually, but. I feel that way as well, you know, with with the podcast. I don't expect to change people's minds instantly or that they're going to necessarily agree with everything I say either, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay. I've learned how to be more okay with people disagreeing with me. Yeah. That's an important skill to learn, too, as a, a woman or a femme in our society, someone socialized female, especially. I think we have difficulty with that. It's an ongoing process, right? Like to build my capacity to make mistakes, to have somebody not get me, to have somebody think I'm full of it. Like all of those things have, have happened. And that's okay. I, I still believe this really strongly. And this is available if it's something you want to learn more about. And here's the reasons why it might be useful. And here's why it's actually helpful towards making a more compassionate and equitable world and kind of issuing people an invitation to come find out more if they want that. Yeah, I love that approach because it's so it's self-care for yourself too, right, as an advocate and activist to sort of be able to say, like, I'm going to have a boundary around not 
expecting people to change instantly, but I'm going to put out this invitation and share what I know to be true. And then people can come on board if they want, you know, and it doesn't have to be so fraught. It's hard because some days I feel so urgent about it. Right. And so I'm not always able to hold that position. (laughs) I I just want to say, yeah, because some days I do feel very urgent because the harm that that's being done is so severe sometimes that I do want all of this. I want all of the forms of oppression to be to change like now. Yeah. So I have to work with my own. I have to work with myself around it and so that I can be skillful and and understand that some days I'm not going to be and that's not necessarily invalid. So Right. I feel you on that too. It's it's big important work and yeah, sometimes it can feel really hard to maintain a calm, you know, veneer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't know that staying calm always is important or called for either. Right. You know, that I think going back to the anger and outrage that has a place and sometimes that can be the most skillful thing and the most useful thing and frankly the most loving thing I can offer. Yeah. Absolutely. Anger is loving for sure. If it's anger on behalf of someone towards an oppressive system. Mm-hmm. Well, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff and I know mm. we have limited time, but tell us about your practice and where people can learn more about you. So people can find me on my website, which is carmencool.com. And I am most active on Facebook, actually, and much more on my personal page than my professional page. I found that the line between the two is so thin anyway for me that are non-existent really that people are welcome to find me on Facebook just under Carmen Cool. That's great. I will link to that in the show notes. That's really helpful. Well, thank you so much, Carmen. It's really wonderful talking with you as always. Thanks for having me, Christy. That was great. It was great. I had fun. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest, Carmen Cool, for being here. And thanks to you for listening. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 122 for episode 122. That's christyharrison.com slash 122. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Wouldn't you love to give up dieting and just find peace with food and have your relationship with food be joyful and easy and just not that big a deal? Because I know you have more important things to do with your life than think about food and exercise 24-7. Am I right? So if you're ready to make peace with food and let go of the diet rules and restrictions that just aren't serving you, this course is for you. You can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Food Psych is edited and engineered by the amazing folks at Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Soroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who needs what you fool? And you ain't